0: You've probably already gotten your first bug bite of the season,
1: but itch is way more than skin deep. I thought that all it was telling us was how do we sense something outside of our body? But it's teaching us how we sense everything, not just outside of our body, not just the five senses, but a thousand senses.
2: This week on Unexplainable, scientists have
0: barely scratched the surface of itch. So how deep does it go? Listen to Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. From Cafe and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Barra.
1: There must have been assistants, development people, co-producers who were aware that he had a way of tricking these women to be alone with him in his room. And so the problem with our industry is those people are worried that they'll never work again if they're the person that calls a prosecutor and says he's harassing all these people.
0: That's my guest on the show today, writer, director, and producer, Judd Apatow. You know a lot of his films and TV shows. They include 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Freaks and Geeks, Bridesmaids, Girls, and most recently, The Big Sick, which I thought was terrific. His new stand-up special, The Return, debuts next month on Netflix, and I actually had the privilege of being in the audience when it was filmed in Montreal over the summer. We had made plans for me to interview Judd on the podcast some time ago. But the interview actually took place in the midst of all this news about sexual assault, sexual harassment, and other kinds of misconduct erupting out of Hollywood. It's a complicated issue, the news continues to unfold, the scope is not fully known, and there are lots of voices that need to be heard on the issue, particularly women's voices. But since I was seeing Judd in LA anyway, and he has a powerful voice as a successful producer and director, I wanted to hear his thoughts and I really hope this is the first of a number of conversations we'll have about this important issue on the show. But before we get to Judd, let's answer some of your questions. This question came from Twitter, from the handle at Him, uh, And the question is, is it just my arrogance, or is the AG just about the worst poker player you would ever sit down at a table with? Three question marks. So I assume that's a question about The Attorney General of the United States, Jeff Sessions, and I presume it came in the wake of his testimony this week at a House Oversight Committee. The first thing I'll say is um, I don't play poker, never have, so I can't speak to that. But the important thing, I think, is not whether or not Jeff Sessions has a poker face or not. The important thing is whether or not Jeff Sessions has been completely truthful when he's been testifying in Congress on more than one occasion, including his confirmation hearing. Uh, And is Jeff Sessions properly administering the Justice Department and standing up for the independence of the Justice Department? Now, I'll I'll say right off the bat that one thing that is difficult for me to watch and always has been, no offense to any particular member of Congress, but they're not very good at asking questions. And time and time again, I get the question, you know, did Jeff Sessions perjure himself? And people want to know, did someone, you know, lie and can they be prosecuted for it? I don't see a legal case to be brought in part because when members of the House ask questions or even the Senate, they don't ask them well and they don't pin someone down. So I've seen exchanges, where a member of Congress asks a question that's meant to pin down Jeff Sessions or, or any other person who's testifying, and the witness, in this case Jeff Sessions, answers a completely different question, and the failure to answer a question doesn't mean you lied, and it may be a small point, but there's a reason why, in a court of law, when you watch TV or in real life, the lawyers and judges say we need to hear your answer to the question: is it a yes or is it a no? And sometimes it can be tedious, but you know, members of Congress only have five minutes. You know, it's it's somebody who's trying to make a point and maybe make a point for the cameras. And it's another person, the witness, who's trying to make sure that they stay on message. And you don't necessarily get a lot of truth out of that. And you don't necessarily get a lot of clarity out of that. And it's very, very rare that any kind of criminal case of perjury comes out of that. This next question is from Twitter, from at 50 pound head. That's a very heavy head. And it reads, to your knowledge, is there any precedent for a party, GOP, Going after a political opponent, Clinton, who is no longer even in office to investigate things, uranium one, that happened years ago. It's like if the Democrats went after Mitt Romney. So I, I have not schooled myself on all the history uh, since the beginning of the republic. I think it is, it's highly unusual and it's something that you more often see in countries that are not fully formed democracies. In fact, uh, you know, in the immediate aftermath of Nixon resigning, although he wasn't a political opponent of Jerry Ford, he wanted the country to move on. And Ford pardoned Nixon, which most people credit with being the reason why Ford ended up losing the presidency to Jimmy Carter. More relevantly, at the beginning of the Obama administration, there were a lot of people who wanted the Obama Justice Department to go forward and prosecute some of the people who were responsible for the harsh interrogation methods in the war on terror. And my recollection is that Obama and other folks, they proceeded in some ways, but they also felt it important for the country to move on. But this idea... I think, generally speaking, of people going after their opponents, particularly when it's directed out of the mouth of the sitting president of the United States, is not healthy. um, It's not good for unity. It's not good for the rule of law. It's not good for independence. It is true that if there is a solid basis for pursuing criminal investigation against somebody, nobody's above the law. On the issue of the appointment of a special counsel to investigate the uranium-1 thing, what I took from Jeff Sessions' testimony in the House Judiciary Committee this week was that it's not likely to happen. And if you saw the testimony, he got a little testy when being asked even by members of his own party why he wasn't directing the appointment of a special counsel. That to me sounded like the letter that was sent, but I don't know. What that sounded like to me was Jeff Sessions and the Justice Department had sent a letter to Congress saying that they would take a look. Like people in the Justice Department will often say to appease Congress, we'll take a look, but don't get your hopes up. It also may be simultaneously possible that... Part of the audience for that letter suggesting a hard look at appointing a special counsel by the Justice Department was Donald Trump, who has time and time again said that that's what he would like. So I think we should wait to see how this plays out. I would not be surprised at all if the request was declined, but you never know. Here's another question from Twitter, from someone with the handle at used to be GOP. It's interesting. And the tweet reads, hi, Preet Now, by the way, these are longer now because everyone has 280 characters. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Hi, Preet Bharara, love your pod. Thank you. What's your take on the Trump administration's judicial nominees and the stories of their lax qualifications and hyperpartisan partisan leanings? Are there ways to counter or overturn lifetime appointments? How do we push back on this? So a couple of responses. There's no way to counter or overturn lifetime appointments. That's an important structural feature of our Constitution, and it helps us and it protects us and it keeps the judiciary independent. And in fact, given what it sounds like your current leanings are, you don't want there to be a way to counteract lifetime appointments because there are people who have been on the bench for a long time who don't want to be intimidated by whoever the president is. And that's something that Trump has been trying to do in connection with the travel ban and some other things that he doesn't like. I think that would be a dangerous road to go down. Now, on the question of what to make of the qualifications of some of these Trump nominees, uh, you know, in fairness, I will say there have been, you know, less than stellar qualified nominees in every administration. It was true in the Obama administration. It was true in, the Clinton administration and the Bush administration in between. But I, I've never seen before in this small period of time, this number of nominees being declared unanimously unqualified by the American Bar Association. And that you know association people have criticized before, but it's a group of professionals who take a deep dive into judges' credentials, their experience, what their colleagues think of them, and their temperament. And it's a lot. In just a few months here. And that's not a good thing because you serve for life and you can do, you know, a lot of injustice if you don't belong on the bench. As for the question of whether these nominees are are partisan, they're partisans on both sides. I think it would be ideal if people were sort of down the middle uh, when they're being nominated to the bench. But this is something that happens both times. I think it's a little too early to see whether Trump's nominees are more to the right than Bush's nominees. I'm not sure that that's so. I think with respect to the Supreme Court nomination of Gorsuch. That's somebody that Mitt Romney might have appointed. That's somebody that George Bush might have appointed. So I don't know that they are any more to the right than a different Republican president would have appointed. And as for your last question, how do we push back on this? Well, the way you push back on this is to elect the person that you would prefer to have in the White House. So vote. And now for my conversation with acclaimed writer, director, producer, Judd Apatow. Judd and I had a really interesting conversation. It was funny, but it was also serious. The serious part related to the news coming out of Hollywood about sexual assault and misconduct and even possibly rape. Uh, We talked about Harvey Weinstein, about the comedian Louis C.K., who Judd knows personally. We even talked a little bit about Woody Allen and also the role of people who have enabled that kind of conduct throughout Hollywood. And some of those people have been lawyers from my own profession. But as you'll hear when the conversation starts, Judd was really eager to talk about Donald Trump. That's coming up. Stay tuned.
3: Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise, or wherever you listen.
2: Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform And it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned.
0: Judd Apatow, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Uh, so we're we here in your West Pico Boulevard. Is it a boulevard? It is. It is a boulevard. Uh, in Los Angeles is where it all happens. You have a very busy-looking office. It means you must be busy. So you love comedy. I do. I do. I love comedy, too. Um, I had in my bedroom when I was a kid uh, an old black-and-white you know, cathode ray tube RCA television, and every night I would watch Letterman from 1230 to 130, uh, religiously. I can quote back to you a lot of the things that he said. Sure. I went on to become a federal prosecutor
1: you went on to change the face of comedy. What what went wrong for me and right for you? Well, I don't know. It seems like the, the it's that's re- reversed in a lot of ways. <laughs> what have I added to the world? Uh, I I find that very interesting because I when I was a kid I wanted to be in comedy from the time I was about ten. I just thought maybe similar to you, the world is really screwed, <laughs> and comedy seemed like a way to address it. Like God, nothing seems fair. That's why I love the Marx Brothers because I felt like. They were basically saying, none of this makes sense. Like a movie like Duck Soup, which was just making fun of government and war. And I, I just like people who were flipping the, bo- the bird to power. So in a way, you did that
2: <laughs> I by guess, uh, I
1: acquiring guess. your own power and, uh, and fighting uh, for uh, you know, people to be held accountable. So maybe we're doing the same thing in different ways. Why did it take you until age 10? Exactly. What Why was so I doing? late? Yeah. Exactly. I, I needed to get the right amount of beatings. Oh, really? <laughs> no, I didn't get any beatings. I always think that Donald Trump's dad beat the living hell out of him. It's one of my private theories, which is he just really behaves like somebody was physically abused. Whenever I hear that story that they sent him to boarding school uh, because he was unmanageable and none of his siblings went to boarding school, I always think, what kind of abandonment is that as a kid and does that make you feel like, I must accomplish, I must be a winner for dad who sent me to this boarding school and beat the hell out of me, which is my guess. I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, sure of that. But do you ever think about that? Like, what mentally happened to Donald Trump that he is this guy? I, you know, I have no idea. But
0: but along the lines of what your career is about, the one thing that I find odd about Donald Trump that I didn't appreciate until mm. literally the day before I went to go meet him last November when he was going to ask me to stay on is this odd characteristic that he has of not laughing. He smiles mm-hmm. at jokes. He makes jokes himself, whether you find them funny or not. But, but there are... Almost no cases of him on tape laughing. What do you think that's right. about?
1: I, I do think that that's a mental illness. I think that's <laughs> like what a serial killer does because. You know, when you laugh, you're showing you understand someone, you're showing you care about them, that you love them, you're making a real human connection. I think that's something we all talk about, that Donald Trump doesn't seem to be making human connections. And that's why it's easy for him to fight with uh, widows and the parents of uh, people, uh, you know, whose, whose kids gave their lives for this country. There's just a lack of empathy that we don't quite understand what is at the root of it. And we don't know where it leads us. It certainly leads in some respects to, to terrible things like uh, not having compassion for the, the dreamer kids in our country, just just being comfortable with the suffering of other people. And to me, it all comes back to being a guy that owned a casino. Because what what does a casino do? It tries to take your last penny. Because we all decide in life where we want to spend our time, what we want to work on, how we want to make a contribution to to the world. Do so you think all casino owners, you think Steve Wynn is a terrible person? Oh, absolutely. I think that they all are. I think these are right. some of the worst... Should
0: we go down the list? We we, go. Uh, yeah,
1: Sheldon Adelson. I mean, I think that the idea that your vocation is to figure out how to get people to leave their money with you, I think is a horrifying way to to make a living. I want to go back to this point of Donald Trump not laughing.
0: You know, he's not a humorless. He knows how to make other people laugh, maybe not yeah. you, but he knows enough about people to get them to laugh from time to time.
1: Well, if you really made a list of the Donald Trump jokes, they're usually uh, attacks on people. I think a lot of his humor is about uh, making people, people feel terrible. For instance, the other night, I guess he considered it a joke. I'm not sure, but when he said uh, about uh, the head of North Korea, you know, I didn't call him fat and short is that what he said Um, yeah he called him kim jong-un apparently called him an old
0: and donald trump responded by saying i didn't call you short and fat although i could Uh,
1: and i think on some level he thinks that's a joke i think we're literally watching a mating dance between two of the most (laughs) awful people the earth has ever seen and this is part of their they're like flirting it's like it's like lunatic flirting Who, who is using humor well if we think that trump is not I think that Al Franken is one of the funniest people uh, that's ever been in government, and he is very uh, careful about using that sense of humor. But when he does, I I, I think that he's very effective, and his book is very good. Uh, I think that uh, Barack Obama was hysterical. I think to the point that he had to hold back how funny he was. (laughs) I I remember seeing him in a town hall when he was first uh, running for president. It was on C-SPAN. And a woman asked a question. And he said something so cutting and so funny that I thought, oh, this is too funny, borderline mean. Th- this guy is viciously funny and he has to censor this. But he's actually hysterical. I mean, I wrote some jokes for him for correspondence uh, dinners. And I was always amazed that, you know, he would do what, you know, it would be almost a 15 minute, 20 minute routine. Yeah. He wouldn't stumble on one joke. He wouldn't flub a line would he practice do you know if he practiced I don't know it's a really good question I mean his timing was so impeccable and he really got the spirit of every joke uh, and as someone who does stand up and who has a Netflix special coming out in December I was there I, I was there at the taping it's going to be very good <laughs> I, I, I was always amazed like wow he just doesn't he never slips on this and then I've seen him speak you know just in events just talking to people taking questions and he 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 is uh, uses humor very uh, effectively Which jokes did you write? Can you tell us? You know, I I don't want to be a joke, uh, claimer, you know, know, people who like go, I wrote that one. You don't want to be that person. But one of the jokes that we wrote was, um, people say, I don't reach out across the aisle enough. I don't hang out with these people. But they say, uh, you know, why don't you have lunch with Mitch McConnell? have a drink. I I remember this. I
0: know your joke better than you. (laughs) You want to say it? Yeah. And I (laughs) use this. I I use this. (laughs) Why don't you have a drink with Mitch McConnell? And I say. Well, you have a drink with
1: Mitch McConnell. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's the simplest joke. You have a drink with Mitch you McConnell. You have a drink with Mitch McConnell. <laughs> um,
0: I, I was once... I was once... So I worked in the Senate, and I found Mitch McConnell, he's very shrewd and he's very smart, and he, you know, depending on your perspective, you like his policies or not, not a funny man.
1: Not a funny man. A terrifying man.
0: Is the purpose of comedy just to make people laugh, or is there, you know, a higher order of it that means it should not only make people laugh, but make them think, make them feel alive, make them reconsider their
1: positions uh, show them the idiocy of the world or is that too cerebral Well, I think it's all of it I think there is a place for that I remember watching Jon Stewart during uh, the re-election campaign of uh, George Bush and thinking there's no way George Bush can win based on how hysterical and well thought out all these pieces are that his show is creating and when George Bush won I thought oh, none of this works, none of this works, because if it did, this would have had an impact. And I wish it did work, but I, I don't know uh, if it works in the way we would like it to. I do think it may be training the next generation who will be more tolerant and more thoughtful and and hopefully stand up for certain ideals.
0: At least, it, you know, it doesn't have to be, the way I phrased the question It was about whether you're persuading people to your point of view or not, and maybe the more important thing is it's more like school. School is not there to indoctrinate you into being left or right. It's there to teach you, hopefully, how to think for yourself and be critical of institutions and be skeptical of politicians. And that's sort of what, you know, you have done and John Stewart does.
1: You well, know, Jon Stewart, when know. he left the show, he said, you know, uh, and I, I paraphrase, I don't remember exactly, but he said, uh, pay attention and there's a lot of bullshit out there. Uh, and he had a, a great monologue about uh, being aware of the bullshit that uh, is being uh, spread every day. And that is part of comedy, is to help you learn how to think about certain things, to point out injustice, to point out things that are ridiculous. And other times it's about other things. It's about com- It's about love and connection and you know, smaller human foibles and everything we do to try to survive this life and try to find happiness. So there's all different kinds of, uh, of comedy, but the political comedy right now is especially charged. I'm amazed that they can do it every night. As a comedy writer, you know, I'll turn on Seth Meyers and go, these guys wrote this today? This is like <laughs> a brilliant 10 minute run of observations, jokes, so something has to happen in the news. They have to process it, then they have to figure out their point of view on it, then they have to find a way to make that point of view entertaining and funny. And they do that between like 10 and five o'clock every day. They write 10 minutes of something remarkable. Uh, and and all these people are doing it. And I'm in awe that they they can do it. And I'm in awe that John Stewart did it for 17 years. And every
0: day. Unlike, are you in awe of the people at Saturday Night Live?
1: I, at times I am. At I think, times. At times. I, you know, I think Saturday Night Live sometimes goes hard at people. Sometimes goes soft at people. Sometimes they try to take both sides and they'll say, oh, we hit the Republicans. we got to hit the Democrats here. And I think that in the past, their attempts to keep everybody watching the show uh, prevented them from having a strong point of view for me personally i like when a show has a point of view there's a head writer who's like this is what i believe and my comedy follows this i want to turn to um you know a, a serious topic but you've been particularly
0: outspoken about it and so i want to ask you a couple of questions about the allegations against harvey Weinstein. Uh, against Louis C.K. and by the time this airs, maybe there'll be a bunch of new ones. I'm sure, which is disheartening and unfortunate that that's happening. Why is it so prevalent
1: in Hollywood? It's hard for me to know you know what it's like in other businesses. From what I hear, it, there are similar problems in every business, but there are specific aspects to how the entertainment world is run that sets it up to be a problem. One is it's you know it's a business that is a lot about like a point of entry. And so there's the potential for abuse to say you can enter this world, you can get this job if you do this. And it's not about
0: you know you don't take a test. It's not a quantitative exam that you take. Yes. And so certain people have
1: an outsized power to make you successful or not. Exactly. And that that becomes a problem. And I guess it probably is the same you know, in every other business, someone decides if you get the job, someone decides if you get the promotion, there are certain people with a lot of power. And if they abuse that power, um, you get these, these, uh, issues of harassment, but there's something about a lot of, you know, handsome young men and beautiful young women trying to get noticed, trying to get people to realize they're talented, to give them opportunities. Uh, you know, you can't. Prove you're a great uh, actress without getting the job. You have to get the work to show what you do. And that creates a lot of power and potential for abuse from the people who give out those jobs. So you have that uh, happening. And then I think there's something about people's self-interest that keeps them from stopping it. I think people don't want to make waves. People people don't want to... Get on the phone and call someone and go. What's going on with Harvey Weinstein? What, what is this? Like the other day, Alec Baldwin was giving a speech somewhere. He preempted some stuff, and he said, uh, "The uh, I, I heard for decades this rumor that Harvey Weinstein raped Rose McGowan, and I just thought, did you ever ask anybody about it? Did you ever ask your agents? You ever ask?" I don't know if he made movies with Harvey after the point he heard that rumor. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. But did you ever think it was worth saying? Is that true? And if it's true, shouldn't we come up with a way to keep actors and actresses safe from him? And I think it's you know it's unfair to point him out as the only example. He he's just the one person that said it out loud. Let's assume there was a hundred people who heard that rumor. Did anyone call anyone to say? Shouldn't we protect these women from Harvey? I was talking to an agent the other day and he said to me, you know, Harvey had a process. He would go to a film festival. He would say, these are the women I want to meet. He would set appointments for the morning. At the last minute, he would cancel and move the appointments to the early evening. There would be multiple people there and and they would meet this person like at the restaurant downstairs and they'd say Harvey'll be right down and one by one people would have to leave to get to other appointments till there's just one person and then they would say Harvey would like to meet you upstairs and then they were left alone now who were those people involved in this process there must have been assistants development people co-producers who were aware that he had a way of tricking these women to be alone with him in his room. And so the problem with our industry is those people are worried that they'll never work again if they're the, the, the person that calls a prosecutor or the head of an agency or a studio and says he's harassing all these people. Uh, and that's what we have to change. We have to find a way to get the business manager who writes the check to the woman that H- Harvey Weinstein harassed or raped to say, I won't write that check. I'm not going to do that. And do do you think we've reached a tipping point where more and more people will do that now? I think it is the beginning of a massive change because women always felt like no one will believe me and I won't be supported. And we've just said to them, we will support you. We're here. We probably should support you much more. There still will be people who feel that they didn't get supported enough, but the environment has changed dramatically. And that's why you have, you know, an enormous amount of people saying, oh, I can say now? Well, this is what happened to me here and this is what happened to me there. And so suddenly, it, it feels like a tidal wave. It's because all these people have been traumatized and they have been terrified to come forward because they're worried about losing their careers uh, or being sued. I mean, Look what Brett Ratner did. He's, he's suing this woman. Brett that, Ratner, who's a director a pro- of movies. A, a producer director and producer. and producer and financier. A woman wrote a Facebook post, accusing him of rape. He's suing her. No, it's, it's a woman. I don't think she's in the business anymore. I think she lives in Hawaii or something. And he's suing her for millions of dollars. She clearly doesn't have the money to uh, defend against this. But what is the reason he's doing this? It's a signal to anybody else that might be thinking about coming forward that I'm going to make shut. your life hell. Right. Uh, he's not suing any of the famous people that are accusing him because they have the means to deal with it. Luckily, that woman got a lawyer to say, I will uh, defend you pro bono. So she is being defended. But that's why people don't come forward because of things like that. Do, do I have this wrong? Is he also the person that's associated with Wonder Woman? Yes. Yeah. He's one of the producers of Wonder Woman. And, and Gal Gadot said, I'm not gonna do the sequel. If Gal he's Gadot who of played Wonder Woman. And that's something that you might not have seen yeah. some years ago. Yeah, she said, "I'm not going to make the sequel," and that's really what it takes to change this business: is people to say, "I will not work with that person." You know, there were rumors about uh, Bill Cosby for years. Uh, two women who went on the Today Show and, and told uh, their story. Uh, uh, you know, more than a decade ago, he still was getting development deals to do new TV shows and specials. You know, people did not uh, say, "We stand with you." They want. To ignore it because these people generate a lot of money and people don't want to be the one to make the call. Like it's hard if you're the head of a studio to say, you know, I'm not gonna make this TV show anymore. Well, because it's hard.
0: you're a pedophile. Well, if you think it's hard, obviously, for the head of a studio to say that, how hard is it for, you know, for the key grip yeah. or for the lower level manager? Yeah. And it's it's a problem that's happened from the beginning of time because people don't want to be ostracized you know we should have a system in which it's the perpetrator who's, ostr- who's ostracized not the victim is yes. ostracized
1: and and maybe that's beginning to happen a little bit well i, I hope so i hope things change i mean you know ronan Farrow writes these, these incredible articles about harvey weinstein and everything that he learns and you know we hear crazy things he's hiring ex-mossad agents who are private investigators who are pretending to be victims in order to find out more information it's really dark evil stuff but yet Ronan Farrow not that long ago wrote an article about his father Woody Allen uh, molesting his sister and his sister wrote uh, an article about it which was in the New York Times and everybody ignored it and if you'll notice no one ever turns down a job in a Woody Allen movie every single person says yes nobody says I I believe her. So we're all so willing to say, yeah, we were wrong about Rose McGowan. I guess she was right about everything, but why does everyone still uh, say, I I don't believe Woody Allen's daughter? Look, it's not just from my perspective. There have been enablers in the legal field too.
0: And there's a lawyer of great acclaim, and I don't know all the details, and I think he's apologized for it for David Boyce, was representing Harvey Weinstein, and now it appears that he was actually investing in some of the movies that Harvey Weinstein was making at the same time representing the New York Times and contracted with an investigative company that was using, as you say, these former Mossad agents to intimidate people and get information about them. That's kind of gross. Mm -hmm. A second example of gross behavior by lawyers, there are cases of people in the media business who basically had it in their contracts that nothing was going to happen to them if they, from time to time, had to settle maybe even for millions of dollars, yes. sexual harassment claims against yes. other folks. That, that's enabled by lawyers yeah. who decided at the company, you know, don't ask, don't tell. You do these bad things and we don't have to know about it, but
1: you're so profitable to us. Yeah, I mean, look at News Corp. You, you know, Bill O'Reilly, you know, he's paying out tens of millions of dollars to people that he sexually harassed. They know he's paying out claims. They claim they didn't know on the last one How much it was for or what he did that's what they're saying so they find out he has a new claim he they he's they they're told that he settled it they give him a new gigantic contract on the path forward on these issues that are coming out of hollywood should people like
0: should people rise up and refuse to work with woody allen and harvey weinstein for all time going forward
1: i think that there's a debate that's about to happen which is what do we do with these deviant people what happens to them? Do they? Some of them may be criminals. Not well, just some TV. of them should be in prison. Some of them, you know, it's always difficult to prosecute these cases. Even Cosby, uh, you know, got a hung jury with you know an, an insane amount of uh, accusers and a lot of evidence and him on the record saying that he gave women quaaludes. So this is—they're very difficult to prosecute. And so now you're going to have all these people at different levels. So at the high end, you have like these rapists and sexual harassers and people blocking doors while they're masturbating. And then you have people who just treat people badly, you know, just schmucks who are really hurting people's lives in ways they don't quite understand. Uh, There's all sorts of weird power dynamics at play. People are manipulated into doing things they don't want to do. So you have every level from, you know, the worst to a lighter level. And then we go what do you do with this person? What do you do with Brett Ratner? What do you do uh, with Harvey Weinstein? Is he barred from show business? Well, there's no law in show business. Wait,
0: but are you, but are, you, are you saying, in other words, you know, you, so you have, you have uh, your wife, Leslie Mann, yes. who's a wonderful actor. I think she's terrific. You have two daughters yes. who act from yes. time to time. You know, what do they say, or what do you say to them on this question, if it ever comes up? If I get offered a, a job in a Woody Allen movie or a Brett Ratner movie...
1: Um, do you do it or do you not do it? I think you don't do it. Don't do it. Oh, absolutely. And so that's, that's come up and you don't do it. It's come up for me. I mean, uh, there's a reason why I haven't worked with any of these people. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, you know, if you look at the resume, I'm doing my best. I don't always succeed, but I'm avoiding the awful people as much as I can. I don't have a ton of Harvey Weinstein uh, collaborations. I'm not making movies with Brett Ratner. And that is because, uh, you know, when you hear someone is terrible, you avoid them. But, but is that uh, your advice to everyone? Say, look, especially now, if we want to put an end to this
0: conduct and take away the ability of, of powerful men to abuse women um, and other men in a terrible way who are, who are up and coming, stop working with them.
1: Is that your... Message? I think that's part of it. Mm-hmm. I, I you know Here's the thing. It's very different when you're talking about one complaint 35 years ago and there's not a lot of information versus, you know, James Toback with 300 accusations. And this is what is gonna be so difficult about this, which is how are we gonna handle these situations where it's not 10 or 20 accusers, it's one person. It's, that's a very tricky thing. And I don't have an answer for that. What about for the general
0: public? We're not deciding to, you know, we're not getting offers to be in a Woody Allen movie or a Harvey Weinstein movie, but they're trying to decide, you know, do I go see a movie?
1: Yes. Um, How are we supposed to view the art of people who have done these terrible things? I, you know, I'm not one of those uh, people that's like, you know, let's burn the negatives on these projects. I just, I, I don't care that much about it. If, if you get a kick out of watching the Cosby show, I don't get it. I don't get why it wouldn't trouble you deeply, but, and I'm not going to support it. Uh, but I'm not obsessed with like spending my time going. We gotta get it off the air. I think the people who run it, and there are people who run it right now. I think it's creepy. I think that it's it's. Uh, I I think it's probably wrong. But it's not my issue. If you're gonna go watch Annie Hall, I get it. I get why you, you, there are certain people that are like, yeah. I, I I think he he's probably an awful person, but I enjoy the movie and I can separate it. And I don't think it's up for me in America to say you shouldn't watch it. Uh, let's try to prevent you from watching it. That, that, you know, that's not what our country is about. For me personally, these projects get ruined because I see them through the prism of who the person really is. So the jokes mean different things. The stories mean different things. You, you, you you you, lose respect for the artist and it's it's not, it's not the same. I lose respect for the artist, but I also think I understand new levels to the artist. So when I watch it, I'm actually not even seeing the story in the same way because It might be an episode of The Cosby Show where he's the greatest guy in the world. In my head, I'm thinking one of the reasons why he's making this show is so that he can knock people unconscious and rape people. And then you won't think that he ever would do that because he has such a sweet episode of The Cosby Show.
0: It might be even more difficult for you because you know him well, Louis C.K. Sure. And some of his comedy it turns
1: out it was about the very things that he's now confessed to having done. And that's a different type of situation because a guy like Cosby was saying, I'm perfect. And and it was almost like a pedophile priest who's trying to say to the world, uh, it can't be me because look at all these great things I'm doing. Somebody like Louis was exploring the dark side. He, he was uh, talking about things that he did that were wrong, that he was ashamed of. And so now we look at that in a different light and go, what, is that? what did that mean? What was he trying to say? And uh, a lot of it is very on the nose. It's, a lot of it is very clear. It feels connected to these issues that we're talking about. Did, did you hear the rumors about Louis C.K.? There was always one rumor that I heard, which was that there was this situation in Aspen, and that's the story that came out. What always made it complicated was... At least for me, I never knew who the women were and no one ever went on the record and said, it was me. And I think a lot of these things are very difficult to talk about if there's no face to it. But going back now, if you had to
0: do it over again, would you have said something to him? Would you have confronted him? Or would you have tried to inquire more? Or would you have asked other people? And what, what, You know, learning the lessons of the last few
1: days and weeks. Yes, I think that's what, the what, right what, question. What, should you have, what, what do you think someone like you should have done? I think that's the the right question and it it is it does become about like are we all going to become investigators right you know there's all these like rumors and weird things flying and there's some of them that are are very worthy of follow up and then there's these other ones which are kind of strange and you don't really know what they mean and there's no person saying it's me I got hurt which really require follow up so that so the question you're asking me is On a rumor, should I have called Louis C.K., who I don't work with, and said, is that true? Now, a lot of people that we know did do that. And he said, it wasn't true. And so until someone said, oh, yeah, it is true, it's me, it's a very hard thing to confront. Have you had conversations with your daughters
0: about uh, show business and... The realities of it in this Uh, in this, in this
1: regard and how what are those conversations like if you can share i think that uh from from birth i've talked to my daughters a lot about social media about how show business works that there are dangerous people out there there are people that can't be trusted you need to figure out how to keep yourself safe you need how to be in tune with who you're with and uh what they're like uh that this can be a, a, you know a scary place at times you know rarely but it's real and we we just talk about all of it very openly because the one thing you don't want is someone to just assume everything's fine <laughs> you know I you know I'm friends with Gavin De Becker the 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 writer and he's written you know about you know security he's a security specialist and and he said to me you know the way women get hurt is by trying to appease men that the, most of the times when a woman gets attacked, somehow they've been tricked by a man said not being impolite. So like an example he uses is a, you're in your apartment building and a guy says, hey, you want me to help you with your, your shopping bags? And then the woman doesn't want to say, get out of here. That generally people uh, are trying to be polite. And because they're trying to be polite, they will let that guy in the apartment to drop off the bags. And, and, they, at the, and I'm sure this is true for men as well, that, that this intention to be polite and not cause a scene gets people in big trouble. So what I always say to my daughters is, you know, if you feel something's weirds happening, speak up, get out of there, run, yell. You don't want to be the person who's thinking, I'm, it's probably fine. No, it's probably fine. I don't want to create a scene create a scene, get, get out of there. We, we have a lot in common as, as, uh, people might find surprising.
0: One of them is I also have a daughter who, um, treats me with the same amount of you know respect and admiration that sometimes your daughter seem to. And this is a, this is a quote that could have been my daughter talking about me, but you're the professional comedian and you quoted her saying, uh, I talking about you, I find your jokes so annoying <laughs> that sometimes my friend's make jokes that are funny and i don't
1: laugh <laughs> <laughs> in spite of me in spite of me yes i did that is do you true. make your family laugh or not uh I sometimes you know sometimes sometimes i'll make the effort i'm like tonight i'm going to try to make my family laugh because they find me so unfunny i'm going to try to let them know i'm good i'm going to give them the ace but do they, pre-
0: do they appreciate that other people find you funny or are they I, I think they, quizzical find it, about that. they find
1: it annoying for the most part uh, <laughs> i think uh I think they both respect it and are irritated by it as they should be. I, I totally support, uh, support it because, you know, you support their irritation with you. Yeah. Cause if you live with me, you're, you know, I'm making a fair amount of jokes and I, my failure rate is probably 80, 90%. So you're listening to eight or eight bad jokes out of 10 for your whole life. Right. Cause you're working it out at home. I'm working it out at home. I'm bringing right. the good stuff to the world. It's and, not all Netflix <laughs> at home, right? Netflix <laughs> is, is yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of crap to get through, uh, but all kids think their dad is a schmuck. Uh, and so I can, I've learned I have to three. deal with that. And they, that that's, is that is in <laughs> fact I fact check that that's true. That is true. And so, you know, who wants to hang out with their parents? It's funny because my daughter, uh, you know, one, I have one daughter in college. The other daughter is fifteen. She lives at home, and I would say, four. People as a family. Three is a child observing a weird couple. <laughs> and the other day, like I said to my daughter, do you want to That's have dinner? That's good. Did you write that? That's good. I, I, did, like that. <laughs> I said to my daughter, do you want to have uh, dinner with me and mom? And she's like, no. I'm like, why not? She's like, what would ever be fun about that? I'm like, well, what do you mean? she's like, well, you're just going to like give me a hard time about my life, or I got to listen to your life, and I don't care at all. This made me feel much
0: better, because I thought, wow. It must be different for Judd Apatow, right? I think it's Who's the same for everybody. Who's actually funny in his home and makes a living off. I mean, that's how, they, that's how you're, you're paying for college, right? Because other people find you funny, even if your daughter doesn't. Exactly. I, that's what I tell her. I say, it's, you know, it's paying the bills. so give me a break. Here's my favorite quote from you, and then we'll end. All right. And you once said, I think that everything I do tends to root for the underdog. I always felt as a kid that I was underappreciated, invisible, or weird. But I've always secretly thought people would one day appreciate what is different about me. I'm always putting that message out there.
1: Eventually, the nerds and the geeks will have their day. Uh, yeah, I thought that the whole time I was a kid, when I was all alone, I just thought all these things I'm interested in, no one cares about. But I think when I get to the real world, they will care about that. <laughs> the, the rest, they will, but your family won't. They're still irritated. Yes.
0: Joe <laughs> Dapto, thank you so much. Thank you've you been, You've been a tremendous sport and guest.
1: Oh, I appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much.
0: Now, here we are at the end of the show, and I want to take a minute to talk about something that happened in the news recently that struck me. And this week, I saw that Senator John McCain, Republican from Arizona, took to the floor of the Senate. And one of the things that I like to highlight on the show week after week is examples of people who don't behave in a knee-jerk way according to what their party wants and do things based on principle and on conscience rather than on partisan politics. And John McCain, war hero who was tortured in Vietnam when he was captured, took to the floor to oppose the nomination of Donald Trump's nominee to be the general counsel of the Department of Transportation. It's not a national security position. But there was a debate about national security because the person who he nominated was a man by the name of Stephen Bradbury. And Stephen Bradbury, in the Bush administration between 2005 and 2009, was head of an office in the Justice Department called the Office of Legal Counsel. And part of the job of the Office of Legal Counsel, as some people have said it, was to be the conscience of the department. And while Stephen Bradbury headed up that office in the Justice Department, he authored what a lot of people refer to as the so-called torture memos, which gave a legal basis for all sorts of conduct by the CIA and intelligence community to engage in methods of torture, quite frankly, against suspected terrorists that I and many other people on both sides of the aisle thought went against the grain of what our country is about. So John McCain not only went to the floor to vote against Stephen Bradbury, but he gave an impassioned speech. And I want to just read a sentence to you. He said from the floor of the Senate, quote, we have led by example and sacrificed blood and treasure to advance our ideals around the world, only to undermine our good reputation in a crucible in which we allowed fears to get the better of our decency. And then he said, Mr. Bradbury's work many years ago did a disservice to our nation and its defenders, and I cannot in good conscience vote to give him my trust to serve us again. Look, so John McCain was not successful in preventing Stephen Bradbury from getting confirmed, but according to reports, he changed at least one senator's mind, he stood his ground, and he announced that principle still matters. And I just wanted to take a minute to acknowledge and appreciate what John McCain did. That's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Judd Apatow, and thank you for listening. I'm excited for my first live show with Hasan Minhaj on December 11th in New York. Tickets sold out in like a day. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And special bonus, my mom and dad are going to be in the audience. Thanks again for all the reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't written one yet, go ahead and write one now. I'd really appreciate it. And feel free to be specific about what you like and what you'd like to hear more of. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better give me a call at 669-247-7338 that's 669-24-PREET Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios it's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media Henry Malofsky Chris Berube Jenna weiss Joel Lovell and Max Linsky our music is by Andrew Dost and special thanks to Julia Doyle Jeff Eisenman Jake McAby. We have a new episode coming for you next Tuesday because of Thanksgiving holiday. So get it early before your traveling begins. I'm Preet Barrara. Stay tuned.